opportunity to be here again. And there's something I'm going to ask you to do, but I don't want you to do it right now. When you get home tonight, I want you to take your Bibles. I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Put your finger there and close it. You've got Genesis 1. Close your Bible. Then I want you to turn your minds off. Now, that'll be easier for some of you than others, I realize. But the thing is, find Genesis 1, turn your minds off, open it, and read Genesis 1. Just read the text. If you read the text of Genesis 1, what do you get the idea that the days in Genesis 1 represent? Days. These are not hard questions, folks. Work with me here. Days. Ordinary days. If you just read the text of Genesis 1, you get the idea that God's trying to communicate the idea of ordinary 24-hour day. Day as we commonly understand the term. Now, is there anything else throughout the remainder of Scripture that would cause you to believe the days in Genesis are anything other than 24-hour days? Nope. Scripture's clear. It's consistent. God's trying to communicate the idea of ordinary day. Having said that, why don't many Christians and Christian leaders believe the days in Genesis 1 are, in fact, ordinary days? Because I will tell you this directly. The vast majority of Christians will tell you the days in Genesis 1 are not ordinary days. If God's Word says day, but most Christians don't accept that, those people must be getting information from some other source, right? Now, what would that source of information be? Well, it's evolution. Man's ideas, but you're ta- they're taking man's ideas and using them to reinterpret the Word of God. Now, if you take man's ideas and use them to reinterpret God's Word, is the Bible then your final authority? No. What's your final authority? Man. Man's views, man's, man's opinions are superior to Scripture because you're using those, those concepts to interpret the Word of God. If I go to any church in the world and read this verse, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Am I in too much trouble? No, nope, I'm pretty safe with Genesis 1.1. It's Genesis 1, verse 2, the rest of the chapter. I'm running for my life. Why? Because I preach and teach the following. Because this is what God's Word clearly indicates. On the first day, he created earth, space, time, and light. On the second day, the atmosphere, the firmament, the expanse. On the third day, the dry land and plants. On the fourth day, sun, moon, and stars. On the fifth day, the projected, the Word of God, by the way, said, well, you know, we don't really believe that Bible, and we're really kind of skeptical about this whole idea about this flood. That just seems kind of silly to us. But at the same time, you know, people have always accepted these sedimentary rocks were laid down by that flood, so... If there was really no flood, and we know that the Bible's not true and there was really no flood, if that's the case, we've got to explain these rock layers. Hey, here's an idea. What if these slow processes of sedimentation we see in our world today, what if those processes have gone on for much longer periods of time than we originally thought? That's when they began to propose the idea that the earth was tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to perhaps at least a few million years old. See, this idea that the earth was much more ancient, it became popular in scientific and philosophic circles. It became more popular and more popular. And then in the early 1800s, where do you think this idea became popular? In the church. Particularly the intellectual elite of the Church of England. They said, wait a minute, you know, we know what God's Word says. God's Word says six days, but these people are scientists, and they're pretty smart, and they've determined that the earth is much older than God's Word would indicate. This is what we'll do. We'll just take the millions of years and put them in the Bible. And folks, that's when the church lost its grip on the authority of Scripture. And it was about that time that a young man went off to college. 
he originally went to college to become a physician like his father and his grandfather, but he pretty quickly decided that medicine wasn't for him. So it was decided he would become a country clergyman. So his field of study was changed to theology. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Charles Darwin, the man who more than any other coalesced this idea of biological evolution that over long periods of time, one kind of creature can actually change into another. Early on in his life, Darwin rejected the authority of Scripture. Who said he did? Matter of fact, he said he did. In his autobiography, he wrote this. Whilst on board the Beagle, I was quite orthodox. But I'd gradually come by this time to see that the Old Testament from its manifestly false history of the world was no more to be trusted than the sacred books of the Hindus or the beliefs of any barbarian. Early on in his life, Darwin rejected the reliability of Scripture. While he was on board the ship, the Beagle, as he was traveling around the world, he was reading the works of a man named Charles Lyell. The book was called Principles of Geology. And this set forth the idea that the earth was much more, you know, much older than, than Scripture would indicate. This is where Darwin bought into the idea of millions of years. And I submit that that's really much more an important issue than even evolution itself. Because when Darwin got back to England and he started looking at all the specimens he'd collected and the things he'd shipped back, he was trying to understand and analyze everything. All his observations were planted on this idea that the earth was millions of years old. Now, would anybody believe evolution could happen in 6,000 years? Because people always ask us, Tommy, how old do you think the earth is? I say roughly 6,000 years. Where do you get that idea? Well, so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. You take the biblical chronologies and genealogy, you can come up with a very accurate, uh, you know, biblical chronology, if you want to put it that way. But the thing is, would you believe that we went from a one-cell creature to man in 6,000 years? Anybody believe that's possible? No. I raise this question every church I speak at, and nobody raises their hand. Of course, that's just patently absurd. That can't happen. But what if you've got vast, almost unimaginable time periods. Maybe, just maybe, you can make yourself believe that one kind of animal can change into another. And that's why this is such an emotional issue for the evolutionists. They know without the millions and billions of years, they're dead in the water. Well, is that really what they believe? What they believe. The Darwinian revolution began when it became obvious that the earth was very ancient rather than having been created only 6,000 years ago. This finding was the snowball that started the whole avalanche. This quote from a gentleman named Ernst Mayer, who's been called by many in the evolutionary community as second only to Darwin himself and his influence on Darwinian thought. He says, without the millions and billions of years, we're dead in the water. Well, okay, that explains why the evolutionist is so tied into the millions and billions of years. But why do most Christians accept the millions of years? Why do most Christians directly reject what God's Word tells them? Well, Tommy, you went to school for all those years and you've never taken a science class in your life. What about all those dating methods? You know, all these uh, scientists have proved the earth is billions of years old. Now, is that really true? Actually, it's not true at all. There are several hundred processes that have been used as dating methods. They've been used to date things. And the way these things work, these are processes or, or things that you can analyze or test in the present. You know, whether it's decay of a radioisotope or deposition of salt in the ocean or deposition of sediment in a river delta, or, you know, change in the earth's magnetic field. All these things you can measure or analyze in the present. Now, measuring or analyzing these things in the present, is that science? Sure it is. Science is observable, it's testable, it's repeatable. Those are things we do in the present. 
But then when you take these same processes and you start making assumptions about the past, there's a problem. And what most people don't realize, if you take all the known dating methods, more than 90% of the known dating methods give an age of the earth less than a billion years. Only a handful of these so-called accurate dating methods will give an age of the earth in the 4.5 to 4.7 billion year range. And those are the few that the evolutionists really hang on to the most because it gives them the most time. But I tell people this, if you tell me how old you think the earth is, anywhere from roughly 3,800 years to like 4.8 billion years, I'll find you a dating method that, that agrees with you. And let me, let's just look at how this works. Let's just say I wanted to measure the erosion rate at Niagara Falls. Now, I have no idea why somebody would want to do that, but let's just say that's, I just said, oh, well, honey, I think that'd be fun. Let's go measure that. Now, if I wanted to measure the erosion rate at Niagara Falls, how would I go about it? Let's just say I went to Niagara Falls. Okay, I'm at Niagara Falls. Now, what do I do? I go, well, the edge of the falls is right there. It's where it is. I'm going to see where it is in two weeks. So I go away. I come back in two weeks and go, it's right there. I go away. I come back. And it's right there. And I do that for a couple of years, or ever how long it takes to get enough data points to make my calculations statistically you know, significant, whatever. So I, I, I take all these measurements, and I go, well, let's change this much. And I calculate the rate of erosion. And let's just say it's an inch a month. I have no idea what it is. Don't hold me to the number. But it's an inch a month, okay? Is that science? Sure, that's based on observations I've made over time. I've collected the data. I've, I've analyzed it. I've, I've calculated directly the erosion rate at Niagara Falls. But then what if I say, well, I know what the erosion rate is, and I know where the edge of the falls is. I wonder where the edge of the falls would have been 50,000 years ago. And I do my calculations, and I say, well, over 50,000 years, it would have eroded so far. So this is where it is now, and I add that back to it. Well, 50,000 years ago, the edge of the falls would have been over there. Is that science? No, it's not. You know what that's called? That's called assumption. To make that conclusion, to reach that conclusion, you have to make several assumptions. You're assuming that the rate of erosion has gone on unchanged over all that period of time. You're assuming that the edge of the falls, the place you're measuring, has never been affected. You know, a big chunk of it didn't fall off to an earthquake. There's no catastrophe that altered it. You're even assuming you know the original conditions. All three of those things are based on assumption. They can't be directly observed. Now, the secular world says those assumptions are logical, therefore they consider them scientific. But at the end of the day, you know what they are? They're assumptions. You cannot directly test the past. Now, the most commonly cited dating methods that people use to talk about the age of the earth, particularly, you know, the, the, the long age methods, are those that involve decay of radioisotopes, you know. We'll get to carbon-14 in a few minutes, but I'm talking about, you know, uh, uranium, lead, potassium, strontium, you know, rubidium, strontium, uh, th th those, those dating methods that actually give you ages in the 4.7 billion year range. But the thing is, can you really make those determinations? What is that based on? Well, in order to help you understand that, in the next three and a half minutes, I'm actually going to make you an expert in radioactive decay. Now, you didn't know you were going to get to be a physicist when you came to church. Now, I know you're excited. I mean, I know you're really overcome by a transport of emotion, and you really can't believe your good fortune. But what I'm going to do in the next three and a half minutes, I'm going to make you an expert in radioactive decay, because I really want you to understand that. Now, are you ready? You're just too excited. Okay, let me ask you again. Are you ready? 
Good. It's coming anyway because I have the clicker. And, 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 and my wife says it's really not good to give me too much authority. But nonetheless, I have the clicker. So I'm going to make you an expert in radioactive decay starting now. Nearly every textbook in science magazine teaches that the Earth is billions of years old. And the primary dating method used for determining this is what is called radioisotope dating or radiometric dating. Now, this is a reliable method for measuring absolute ages of rocks and the age of the Earth, right? Huh. First off, many scientists now regard the age of the Earth to be between 4.55 and 4.6 billion years old. Okay. So if this method is reliable and accurate, why the 50 million year discrepancy? That seems like a lot. But let's get into some details here and see what's going on. Keep in mind that there's all kinds of scientific jargon on this topic, and so we'll just present a very straightforward, simplified version of the process. Radiometric dating is the process of estimating the ages of rocks based on the decay of radioactive elements in them. Basically, there are certain kinds of atoms in nature that are unstable and spontaneously decay into other kinds of atoms. For instance, uranium will radioactively decay through a series of steps until it becomes the stable element called lead. The original element is called the parent element, and the end result is called the daughter element. Radioisotope dating is commonly used to date igneous rocks, rocks which formed when hot molten material cooled and solidified. The dating clock started when the rock cooled. During the molten state, it is assumed that the intense heat forced any gaseous daughter elements to escape. It is assumed that once the rock cooled, no more atoms escaped, and any daughter element now found in the rock is a result of radioactive decay since that rock formed. The decay rate is measured in terms of half-life. That is, the length of time it takes half of the remaining atoms of a radioactive parent element to decay. Now, of course, that can be measured in a laboratory, and it is assumed that since we know the decay rate, we can calculate backwards and come up with the age of the rock. But is that all there is to it? Here's where it gets tricky. It's true we can measure a decay rate using observational science, but there's another kind of science that is required to accurately calculate dates for rocks, and that is what we call historical science. Historical science deals with the things in the past, and therefore it cannot be repeated and tested. Dating methods require both types of science, because in order to get accurate rock dates, one would have to accurately know both the decay rate and the initial conditions of the rock sample, right? Since radioisotope dating uses both types of science, we can't directly measure the ages of rocks. There are assumptions involved. For instance, how do we know what the initial conditions were in the rock sample? How do we know the amounts of parent or daughter elements now in that sample haven't been altered by other processes in the past? How does someone know the decay rate has remained constant since the rock formed? The answer is, they don't. Let's simplify here and talk about a typical hourglass. Let's say you walk into a room and you see an hourglass with sand at the top and sand at the bottom, and some sand sprinkling from the top chamber to the bottom. Well, observational science would allow us to see and measure the sand, and then calculate how long the hourglass has been running, right? We could make our sand measurements and then calculate when the hourglass was turned over, right? Well, those calculations could be wrong, because we may have failed to consider some major assumptions. like. Was there any sand at the bottom when the hourglass was turned over? Has any sand been added or taken out of the hourglass? Has the sand always been falling at a constant rate? Since we did not observe the initial conditions when the hourglass started, and we haven't been watching the sand all the time since then, we must make assumptions. All three of those assumptions can affect our time calculations. Now, of course, there's more to understanding all of this, but enough said. See, you're experts. This is not, this is not that hard, right? Okay, we're going to start with the most commonly cited. How many people have heard it said that carbon-14 dating proves the Earth is millions of years old? I mean, I've, I've actually heard that repeated on television, and it's just not correct. Carbon-14 dating, if it were as accurate and reliable as the second world wants you to think it is, you cannot use it to measure the age of things that are supposedly millions of years old. 
The reason is the half-life of carbon-14 is 5,730 years, which means if you had a pound of carbon-14 and you waited 5,730 years, half of it would have decayed away. Another 5,730 years, half of that would decay away. And it goes on like that until you have no more. It cannot last in a sample for millions of years. The outer limit for carbon-14 dating would be 80 to 100,000 years, which is why I found it curious that a group of scientists got together and decided they wanted to carbon-14 date some diamonds. You know how long it's supposed to take diamonds to form in nature? You know what secular estimates for diamond formation are? It's supposed to be hundreds of millions to perhaps a billion years. Now, if something's a billion years old, it should have no carbon-14 in it which is why I found it curious that the scientists wanted to carbon-14 date the diamonds. But nonetheless, I sent these diamonds off to the lab, and using carbon-14 dating, they decided these diamonds were 58,000 years old. Now, we would dispute that 58,000-year date for methodological issues, but nonetheless, if diamonds are a billion years old, they can't be 58,000 years old, right? And if they're 58,000 years old, they can't be a billion years old. So you've got, you got to disconnect either way you turn here. They were digging a ventilation shaft in a mine in Australia some years ago, and they were digging down, they hit a layer of basalt. And in this basalt, they found wood. And they said, wow, we didn't expect to find that. That's amazing. That's incredible. We didn't expect to find wood there. I wonder how old the wood is. So the first thing they did, they sent the rock off to the lab. The rock dated 45 million years old. Then they sent the wood off to the lab. The wood dated 45 thousand years old question how do you get 45,000 year old wood inside a 45 million year old rock I mean 45,000 years ago the aborigines dig down there and say boy they're really going to be surprised when they dig this out <laughs> this is going to be a big joke on them in about 50,000 years May 1980 Mount St. Helens erupted the top inside of this mountain just exploded if you ever get a chance to go to Mount St. Helens you really need to go. It is really incredible, even this many years later, just to think about the destructive force that occurred when this thing blasted. But since the original eruption, there's been a lava dome that's formed at the top of Mount St. Helens. And Dr. Steve Olson, who has a Ph.D. in geology from Penn State, wonderful creation geologist, as part of his uh, research a few years ago, decided he wanted to date the rocks in the lava dome. So he went up and took some samples and sent them off to the lab. And using potassium argon dating, he dated the rocks. Now remember the video. When the lava is flowing, when the lava is molten, the radiometric clock is not operating. It only starts when the lava cools, when the rock actually forms. So nonetheless, Dr. Austin sent these samples off to the lab, and the lab said these rocks were 340,000 to 2.8 million years old. Now right away, you've got to start scratching your head. That's not the most precise range of dates I've ever seen. That's like a 700% difference. See, that's a big range of dates. The biggest issue is this. Those rocks were less than 12 years old when he sent them off to the lab. See, this lava dome has formed on the CBS Evening News. We have videos over the years of the lava dome forming. So we know when it formed. So these methods that are so accurate and so reliable, they've caused Christians to openly question the Word of God. Those methods have just measured a 12-year-old rock to be at least 340,000 years old. We've gone around the world to places where we have historical documentation to show when certain lava flows occur. We have accurate historical dates about when certain lava flows occurred. And again, using potassium argon dating, we dated the rocks. The eruption in Sicily in 122 B.C., 
the rocks dated 170,000 to 330,000 years old. That's just a little off if you do the calculation. The eruption in Sicily in 1972 dated 210,000 to 490,000 years old, which is, again, kind of curious because the more recent eruption dated older than the older eruption. Mount St. Helens, 1986, 300,000 to 400,000 years old. New Zealand, 1954, 3.3 to 3.7 million years old. Hawaii, 1959, 1.7 to 15.3 million years old. Wow, with accuracy like that, no wonder we doubt the Word of God, right? When you have historical records of when certain lava flows occur, when you know how old the rocks are, Radiometric dates don't match the historical dates. But when you don't know how the rocks are, you assume the dating methods work, which is actually quite convenient. In general, dates in the correct ballpark are assumed to be correct and are published. But those in disagreement with other data are seldom published, nor are the discrepancies fully explained. This is the what? Work with me. My slides are labeled, folks. Work with me here, okay? This is the Grand Canyon. See those rock layers? Those rock layers are obviously millions of years old. You've got one or two choices. Either a whole lot of time and a little bit of water caused those rock layers or a whole lot of water and a little bit of time. And you know what you find in lots of those layers? You find fossils. We're going to talk about fossils a little more in the next session. But how does something become a fossil? It gets buried very rapidly. And remember at the time of the flood, lots of things would have got buried very rapidly. Given the right conditions, the right circumstances, how long does it take to make a fossil? How long does the process of fossilization take? Here's a petrified ham. This ham was on a table in a mining shed in New Zealand, got covered by an avalanche. They dug it out 50 years later. The ham had petrified. How long does it take to make a fossil? 50 years or less. Sometime in that 50-year time period, this, this thing had petrified. Now, the next slide, I always, I always kind of hesitate whether or not to use it because, you know, sometimes things have, you know, I, I don't like to, to show fossils or, or, or images that have a lot of shock value, but sometimes, you know, the, the shock value is superseded by the educational value. So, so you know, sometimes fossils can be kind of creepy. So I have decided to go ahead and do this uh, just because I'm in that kind of mood tonight. Uh, but the thing is, I want, I want you to kind of prepare yourself. You may want to grab the person next to you, except for you guys in the front. Y'all just chill. We don't be doing that. And, and yeah, y'all, y'all just, okay. But anyway, uh, just, just you know, prepare yourself. Because, you know, th- this is kind of creepy. But, but, so, but I do think the educational benefit outweighs the shock value. Because this, this is a pretty scary fossil. This is a fossil hat. How do I know this hat's not three million years old? A couple of weeks ago, a guy in the back row yelled out, because it's out of style, which was like the greatest answer ever. It's wrong, but it's a great answer. Well, there are two reasons. One, there were no hat factories three million years ago. And two, if we evolved from ape-like creatures, you know, if evolution was true, we couldn't have worn hats anyway. We've been swinging from branches. The hats would have just fallen off, right? This hat was found in a mine after 50 years that it had petrified. Here's a petrified flower sack. It took three weeks. Math question or history question, is three weeks less than a million years? See, this is not hard. From 1924 to 1988, there was a visitor sign above the entrance to Carlsbad Caverns that said Carlsbad was at least 260 million years old. 
1988, the sign was changed to read 7 to 10 million years old. Then for a little while, the sign said it was 2 million years old. Now the sign's gone. It got younger and younger, and they just took that bad boy down. If the days in Genesis aren't real days, what are they? As I told you this morning, for 15 years of my life, I was, an ev- I was a theistic evolutionist. You know, God created, used evolution. You know, when I read Genesis and I read the word day, I said, you know, God said day, but it's allegory. It doesn't really mean day. It means long geologic time period. That's how, that's how I sort of accommodated that view. Some people accept what's called the gap theory. After Genesis 1-1, that's where the millions of years are, and that's when, you know, uh, uh, Lucifer was, you know, had dominion over the earth, and he fell, and God destroyed and recreated. There's a lot of theologic problems with the gap theory, but it's a way to try to put the millions of years in, in Genesis. But for the gap theory to work, there are any number of problems, but one of the primary problems is you have to reinterpret uh, certain words in Genesis to actually uh, uh, to, to accommodate or make a gap. And no English translation I'm aware of actually translates those words in that way. It's just an incorrect way to translate it. But see, whether it's the gap theory or the day-age theory or theistic evolution, and we deal with these things all the time. This is one of the primary things in our ministry we do. People who compromise or reinterpret the Word of God. All these reinterpretations, they all have one common factor. All these different ways of looking at Genesis have one common factor. You know what that common factor is? We've got to find a place for the millions of years. Plain and simple. We've got to find a way to put millions of years where they obviously don't belong. Now, don't you look at this sentence. Back in my father's day, it took 10 days to drive across the Australian outback during the day. Now, do you understand that sentence? Does it make grammatical sense to you? Yep, pretty straightforward sentence. In that one sentence, we have the word day three times. And in that one sentence, it has three different meanings. Back in my father's day, the word day means what? It's an indefinite period of time. It's like a season of life. It took 10 days. What does it mean there? A 24-hour day. During the day means what? The daylight portion of the day. We have a sentence that has the same word in it three times. That word has three different meanings. We don't even flinch trying to interpret what this sentence means. You know why? We understand the rules of our language, how our language is constructed. There are many words in English that have multiple meanings, and you interpret it based on how the sentence is constructed, you know, and that's just the way we understand language. Well, guess what? It works the same way in Hebrew. The word for day in Hebrew is the word yom, Y-O-M. Well, Tommy, you people with answers in Genesis, you're completely wrong about how you talk about yom, because yom can mean something other than a 24-hour day. And you know it can but it can also mean 24-hour day. Yeah, but Tommy, because yom can mean something other than a 24-hour day, it can't mean day in Genesis, so you're completely wrong, because yom can mean something other than a 24-hour day. Again, that's true. But it can also mean ordinary day. So the thing is, what we did is we looked through the Old Testament at, any, at every uh, time the word yom was used to see if we could find certain grammatical constructions or patterns to help us understand what it means in certain circumstances. Now, this is what you find. When the word yom, or the word day, is used in a sentence with a number, that construction occurs 410 times. It always means ordinary day. You know, King David got up on the 15th day of the month, went out and killed the bear. It always means ordinary day. When the words evening and morning are used in a sentence without the word day, or without the word yom, that occurs 38 times. It always means ordinary day. 
You know, King David got up in the morning, came back that evening after killing the bear. Always means ordinary day. When the words evening or morning are used in a sentence with the word day or the word yom, that occurs 23 times. Again, it always means ordinary day. King David got up in the morning, came back later that day after killing the bear. It always means ordinary day. When the word day is used in a sentence with the word night, that occurs 52 times, always means ordinary day. Anybody want to guess what my next slide is? Genesis 1, verse 5. Night, evening, morning, number, day. What does the word day in Genesis 1, verse 5 mean? Ordinary 24-hour day. Verse 8, evening, morning, number, day. Verse 13, evening, morning, number, day. Verse 19, evening, morning. You starting to see a pattern here? What's God directly trying to tell us in Genesis 1? Ordinary 24-hour day. See, the word yom is used over 2,300 times in the Old Testament. It is only questioned in Genesis chapter 1. You know why? We've got to find a place to put the millions of years. Well, Tommy, you have to understand you are by no means an expert in ancient languages. You have no authority to even speak on this subject. And I will admit that is completely true. My degrees are in cell biology and medicine. that's That's my academic expertise. I do not have academic training in biblical languages or linguistics. I have my oldest daughter has master's degrees in both. I do not understand what she's talking about half the time. Those are not my strong But I am very well read on this topic. I think I am very informed on this topic. But I cannot, do not, and would not present myself as an academic authority or an academic expert in this field. Okay, Tommy, having said that, you just admitted you have no authority, so you have basically have no knowledge about this. You shouldn't even be speaking on this. You should just restrict, restrict your speaking to you know, cell biology and medicine and life sciences. You shouldn't even be talking about this. Because what I just want you to tell you, Tommy, is you're just completely wrong about this. You're completely wrong about this stuff about Yom. You're just totally completely wrong. And the reason I know you're wrong is because I've had an entire semester of Hebrew. And, uh, and I think you're wrong. And my professor says you're wrong. And my textbook says you're wrong. So you're wrong. And folks, that's come up a lot. And my only response to that is this. There's only one thing more dangerous than somebody with one semester of Hebrew. That's somebody with one semester of medical school. You don't want them doing your heart transplant, right? I made that comment a couple months ago. I said, there's only one thing more dangerous than somebody with one semester of Hebrew. And the pastor jumped up and said, yes, somebody with two. So, okay, so if you've had a semester of Hebrew, what did the writer of Genesis intend to convey? As far as I know, there's no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writer of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to readers the idea that, A, Creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. B, the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition, a chronology from the beginning of the world up to later stages in the biblical story. C, Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and extinguished all human and animal life except for those in the ark. Professor James Barr, Hebrew scholar and oral professor of the interpretation of Holy Scriptures, at Oxford University. Would you agree that ascending to that academic position indicates that Professor Barr is a world-class scholar, that he has exhibited world-class academic credentials to be appointed to that, to that position at Oxford? I certainly would. He says there's no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who would even suggest that the intent of the author 
was anything other than to describe six ordinary days. That's what it means. That's what the original language says. That's what it requires. There is no debate. It means six days. Having said that, Professor Barr believes in the millions of years. He's what you call a hostile witness. He says the intent of the original, the original language means six days, but he's one of those academics that says you don't have to believe the Bible literally in any, in any case. It should not be interpreted literally. And we've got, we've got file cabinets full of testimonies and reports from Hebrew scholars all over the world saying very much the same kinds of things. The language means this, but we don't accept it because of such and such. That's what it means, six ordinary days. Now, who created language? God did. I mean, could Adam and Eve speak to each other? At least initially, right? Here the women laugh first. It usually takes about three, so I'm always curious with the men, it usually takes about three seconds. I mean, if God had used a period of time other than day, did he have at his disposal words to describe those other time periods? Absolutely. There are words in biblical Hebrew that are very suitable for communicating long periods of time or indefinite time. None of those words are used in Genesis 1. I wonder why. Maybe he meant day. Six days, yeah. Six truly, really days? Yeah. You sure it says six days? Yeah. I wonder why he took so long. Tommy, you people answers in Genesis. I just don't understand what you're trying to teach. You're telling me that I've got to believe that God created everything in six days? That's what you're telling me. You're telling me I've got to believe God created everything in six days. Is that what you're telling me? Tommy, that's, that, that's hard. Tommy, you're limiting God. You're, you people answers in Genesis, you're putting God in a box. You're limiting God. And that comes up a lot too, and I just kind of wonder, where'd that come from? Because I'm not limiting God. Let me ask you a question. Could God have created everything in six hours? Six minutes? Six seconds? I agree with you all three times. My God is so awesome and so incredible and so powerful, he could have used any time period he chose. I am not limiting God. You know what I'm doing? I'm believing. It's not a question of what he could have done. It's a question of what he plainly said he did. He said six days. I'm good with that. But let's go back to this question. I wonder why he took so long. You ever think about this? Where do we get our idea for a week? You know, there are things in our physical world that define certain time periods for us. I mean, what in our physical world defines a day? How do we understand what constitutes a day? It's one rotation of the earth. I mean, what's a month? Moon goes around the earth. What's a year? Earth goes around the sun. What's a week? Seven days, right? Where do we get that idea? How about this? Exodus 20:11. For in six days the Lord made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. It's God's example for men. You work for six, you rest on the seventh. And for those people who accept the gap theory, you got a huge problem. Not only is the text in Genesis 1 not consistent with that, you've got a problem It's called Exodus 2011. Because God said, in case you weren't paying attention in Genesis 1, let me tell you again, I created everything in six days. You know this is actually part of the Ten Commandments? Are the Ten Commandments good moral teaching? Work with me here. Sure. Are they inspired of God? 
You know what else they are? They're written by God. I saw Charlton Heston bring those tablets down from that mountain. He said, in case you weren't paying attention, let me write it down. He wrote it down for us and we don't believe. Christians are often inclined to take the young earth position simply because it appears to be the plainest reading of the Bible. Well, Don Stoner said that, but he doesn't believe it. He believes in the Big Bang and the millions of years. But he said, you know, if you just read your Bible, the most straightforward understanding is those are ordinary days. Paddle Pun from Wheaton College wrote this. It's apparent that the most straightforward understanding of the Genesis record, without regard to all the hermeneutical considerations suggested by science, is that God created heaven and earth six solar days the most straightforward understanding is six solar days what prevents him from accepting that well all these scientific considerations charles hodge in his systematic theology wrote this the church has been forced more than once alter her interpretation of the bible to accommodate the discoveries of science but this has been done without doing any violence to the scriptures or in any degree impairing their authority now is that a true statement I don't believe that statement's true at all. In order to demonstrate that, I am now going to take the contrary position, which, by the way, my wife says I excel at. Okay, so the days in Genesis are no longer days. And those people that think they're days, you know, you're just making a mountain out of a molehill. It can be millions or zillions or umpteen years. It doesn't really matter what you believe about Genesis because the day, you don't have to believe in days because it doesn't affect anything else in Scripture. So as of right now, the days in Genesis are no longer days. Those days equal millions of years, whatever time period. And those people answer in Genesis, you don't want to be listening to them because, you know, it really doesn't matter what you believe about Genesis because whether the days are days or not doesn't affect anything else, right? So as of right now, we believe in the millions of years. Question. How old was Adam when he died? How old was Adam when he died? You just didn't want to be the first one to say it, right? Okay. Adam was created on what day of creation week? Okay. Adam's created on day six of creation week. Now, I know as a general rule we should not assume things. But for the sake of this discussion, Adam was created on day six. Is it safe to then assume he was alive on day seven. If the days in Genesis aren't real days, how old was he when he died? Because he couldn't have been 930. And guess what? If Adam wasn't 930 when he died, you just did yourself a tremendous, by the a most amazing stroke of luck, you've just, did your, you've just done yourself such an incredible, amazing, you know, extraordinary, life-changing favor because you know what? You know those parts of the Bible where it says so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so? You know, I know those are your favorite parts, right? You know, those are the parts you tell your Sunday school teacher you read, but you really don't because you can't pronounce the names anyway. Guess what? If Adam wasn't 930 when he died, you know what you can do with every genealogy and every chronology in the Bible? You can throw them out because they're worthless. And you do have the authority to do that. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says some scriptures given by inspiration to God. Uh, is there a typo? Somebody got, somebody got, somebody got a problem here? Well, what, what's the problem? All Scripture? Okay, wait a minute. You're telling me that all Scripture is given by inspiration to God? Even those genealogies? You know what I say? Especially those genealogies. Those genealogies provide a direct line between Adam and who? Christ. 
Well, we don't want to let religion get into this conversation so much. We'll move on. We don't want to get to those theological discussions because that's just kind of a side issue. Uh, thorns came as a result of what? Man's sin, right? Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth. See, thorns and thistles came as a result of man's disobedience, but not really. See, I know they didn't. And the reason I know that is because the days of Genesis aren't real days. Well, Tommy, why would you say that? Well, look at these rocks. It always comes back to the rock layers. These rock layers are obviously millions of years old. This is the proof that the days in Genesis can't be real days. But you know what you find in some of those rock layers? You find fossil thorns. They're said to be anywhere between 360 and 416 million years old. How can you have thorns for hundreds of millions of years before man could have evolved to have sinned, to have brought thorns? How could that happen? Well, let's move on. We don't want to get too tied down in all this religion stuff. Plants were created on what day of creation week? About the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, the flying insects and the birds. Oh, i got a crick in my shoulder. i got to bend gas. Okay. Can plants live 24 hours without sunlight? 24 hours, sure, no problem. Can plants live an entire geologic age without sunlight? Nope, they can't. Ah, but I know what you're about to say. You're, you're on top of this. There was already light there. There was light there from what day? From day one. Maybe the light from day one was adequate to drive photosynthesis. So we'll just set our day four objection to the side. Do certain plants need birds and or insects to reproduce? Could they live two days without those creatures? Sure, can they live two geologic ages without those creatures? You see, you've got a problem. We've got two accounts of origin. You've got God's Word and you've got man's account of origin. These two accounts do not agree. If one of them's right, the other one's what? Wrong. And if you accept man's view of origins, you don't have one problem with God, you've got two. Not only is he forgetful, he's incompetent. He can't remember how long it took him to do each of these steps, and he can't remember the order he did them in. And see, that's still not your biggest problem. Was Noah's flood a global event? Did it cover all the earth? Or was it just like a little local flood? Was it just like localized just to Mesopotamia or something? Did it cover everything or was, or was it just a local flood? It covered everything? So you don't believe in a local flood? I'm just, I'm just checking. I mean, I, you know, so, so you're not buying that. But see, you weren't there. How do you know it was a global flood? Seems like God's word is pretty clear to me. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. Now, I'm not a geologist. I'm not a hydrologist. I'm just a poor, simple medical doctor. But I do know one thing about water. It runs downhill. When it says the mountains were covered, what does it mean? It means the mountains were covered. I've talked to any number of secular geologists who tell me, Tommy, I've studied the surface of the earth my whole life, and I just can't believe you Christians believe this whole fable, this fairy tale about the flood. I mean, what's up with that? I mean, I've studied the surface of the earth. There is no evidence anywhere of a global catastrophe. Well, those people are completely wrong because there's abundant evidence of a global catastrophe. You know what that evidence is? It's everywhere. How about this? How about billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth? There's abundant evidence. You know, the earth is like screams there was a catastrophe at one time. But guess what? That only works if the days in Genesis are real days. If you believe in the millions of years, you cannot logically argue for a global flood. Let me show you how this works. 
Well, the days in Genesis aren't real days. That, that, that's, they just can't be. The earth is millions of years old. What's your proof? Well, it always comes back to the rocks. See these rocks? These rocks are obviously millions of years old. If that's your argument, if that's your proof that the earth is millions of years old, then during those six days of creation week, that's when those rock layers were laid down. God said six days, but he meant millions of years. So during those six days, that's when these rocks were laid down. So if after that there was a global catastrophe, what would happen if there was a global flood? What would it do to your rock layers? It would resort and reshuffle your rocks. Then the rocks would be on the basis of what? The flood. So you can't have it both ways. There are a group of people... We call them old earth creationists. And they really have a funny way of looking at things because they reject what the life sciences people say about evolution. They say, we reject what those scientists say, but they accept what the physical scientists say about the millions of years. So by some algorithm that's known only to them, they reject what certain scientists say and accept what other scientists say. They're very inconsistent. But nonetheless, they believe in the millions of years. You know what their biggest problem is? It's called the flood. You should read their books and go to their websites and see how they twist the Word of God out of all recognizable form, trying to convince you, and I'm sure themselves, that the flood was only a local event. If the days in Genesis aren't real days, you cannot logically argue for a global flood. But after all, none of this makes any difference. It doesn't affect anything else in Scripture, does it? What it really comes down to, folks, is one simple question. And that question is this. When did God start telling you the truth? How long was Jonah and the great fish? Anybody? 3,000 years, right? How long did they march around that city? Really? But see, nobody argues about the meaning of the word day in those passages. It's just in Genesis. Well, Tommy, you have to understand that God's time is not our time. Tom, Tommy, you've got to understand. God's time is not our time. Tommy, don't you know that one day is with the Lord's a thousand years? Folks, I've been involved in creation ministry for going on 30 years now. And I cannot count the number of times somebody's brought 2 Peter 3.8 to me to tell me how wrong I am about Genesis. And in all those times, I mean, it's, it's got to be hundreds if not a thousand people have come to me with this over the years. Not a single person who's ever brought me 2 Peter 3.8 to show me how wrong I am. Not a single person has ever read me the entire verse. You know what the rest of the verse says? A thousand years is a day. So it just cancels that right out. This is not a verse you can use as a proof text for the meaning of the word yom in Genesis. I mean, the context of this verse, you know, God is outside of time. I mean, who needs time? Us or God? We do. God's in. He's always been. He's always going to be here. Time is part of the, the creation that God made for us so we take the cake out of the oven on time and we're not late for work. God doesn't need time. He's infinite. He's beyond time. Time is something that, that's for us. But the thing is, when God communicates to us about these issues, he uses language that's consistent. Otherwise, language has no meaning. But see, it's wrong. You can't really, this verse is in Greek. You really can't take a verse in Greek to use as a proof text for the meaning of a word in Hebrew. That just doesn't work. Let me ask you a question. How long was Jesus in the tomb? Three days, right? What if I told you it's 3,000 years? Would that, would that offend you? It would offend me because it means he's still there, right? But the thing is, it makes much more sense to use this verse as a proof text of the meaning of the word day in the Gospels because that's at least Greek to Greek. You cannot use this as a proof text for the meaning of the word yom in Genesis. It just doesn't work. 
But because I'm in a gracious mood tonight, which doesn't often happen, I'm going to grant this objection to anybody that wants to make it. I'm just in such a good mood, I'm just going to give you this one. So if you want to raise this objection, I'm just going to give it to you. The days in Genesis are no longer days. Each of those days is a thousand years. So creation week is no longer six days. Creation week is now 6,000 years. Are you any closer to making evolution work? So even when you grant this objection, it gets you absolutely nowhere. You see, if those rock layers are millions of years old, you've got a huge problem. You've got to explain millions of years of death, 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 and more death, which would then be what the fossil record indicates. Oh, Adam, it's such a perfect world. Yes, Eve, it's very good, like God said. That's what God's Word tells us. You've got to make yourself believe this is what God's Word means. Either God created in six days, it was a perfect creation where there was no death, man's disobedience brought death and corrupted this creation, or death has always been here. You really have no third choice. If you're dealing with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written, but since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you to wantonly turn his word in the direction you wish it to go. 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Be ready always to give an answer Every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. And folks, there's one place we better be having answers. It's about this issue of the age of the earth. It's one of the questions of the age that has affected the vast majority of churches who compromised on this issue. Now, before I close this session, I just want to share with you one of the many evidences in my own personal life that God has a sense of humor. First of all, I have a wife and three daughters, which I know God thinks is totally hysterical. But I haven't had my own opinion since 1989, um, which I conservatively estimate has saved me about 23 minutes a day. So it's been quite a time saver. But a couple of years ago, Answers in Genesis called. This was uh, in early 2006, and they, and they asked me if I'd consider coming on board full time. And that's what my wife and I felt like the Lord would have us do. So I started the preparations to, make, you know, to, to, to withdraw from my medical practice. And I wanted to get Liz and the girls moved up to Kentucky as, you know, as quick as I could so they could kind of get their life settled because it was going to take me probably another six or eight months to get all disconnected. So anyway, we bought a house in Kentucky. And the week we were going to close on the house, I got this genius plan. I said, honey, why don't we rent a U-Haul and we'll take the first load of furniture. I mean, we've got to go up there anyway. Let's just take the first load of furniture up to Kentucky. So we felt like that's what we would do. I don't know if anybody here has rented a U-Haul lately. But maybe you've seen them, you've passed them on the highway, or you've seen them in the, in the rental lots or something. You know, these big U-Haul trucks have these big pictures on the side. You know, you've seen those? You know, come to Philadelphia and see the Liberty Bell, or come to Texas and see the Alamo, or come to Florida and get eaten by a shark, you know, whatever they might have on there. I want to show you the U-Haul that I got. No, no. It's funnier than you think. Did you know? The Hagerman horse grazed Idaho's ancient savanna over three million years ago. <laughs> Fossils indicate this zebra-like species continued to evolve until 10,000 years ago when all traces of the creature suddenly vanished. America's first horse. Was it a zebra? Was it a horse? Learn more about the real story of the American horse at uhaul.com. Well... I was actually working the day that we got the U-Haul, and my wife went to pick up the truck. And let's just say she was not as vigilant as I would have hoped she would have been. So she drove the truck home and pulled it into the drive, and my three daughters, you know, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, came out to see the truck. They read the side of the truck, started laughing hysterically, saying, 
we can't wait for Daddy to get home. So I came home that afternoon. I was driving down the street, and I saw the U-Haul in the drive. I thought, great, we're going to start loading this bad boy up. Everything's fine. And I turned into the drive, and I saw my daughters laughing absolutely hysterically. Now, this is what I said. This is a true story. This is why I said, Lord, thank you. Thank you for letting me come home at this moment. I mean, how many times over the years have I been stuck at the hospital or on call and I missed time with my family, just, you know, the responsibilities I had? How many times have I missed those precious moments with my daughter? Look what you've given me back, Lord. I just just can't wait to share this moment of joy with my daughters. So I pulled in the drive and jumped out and said, Girls, what's caused you to have such joy? And they said, Read the truck. (laughs) Well, I read the truck. Let's just say my daughters were not disappointed. (laughs) I had a grade 3 nuclear meltdown right in the middle of the driveway. The last thing I remember, I was mumbling to myself in the fetal position, kind of rocking back and forth. My wife came out and threw a bucket of water on me, and and I came to myself just enough that I jumped up, ran in the house, picked up the phone, called the U-Haul place, and they had just closed. Therefore... I had to leave my medical practice and enter full-time creation ministry in, of all things, an evolution U-Haul. Folks, it ain't easy being me, okay? Go to our website, www.answersingenesis.org. It's the largest creation apologetics website in the world. Go to the search engine and type in carbon-14 or millions of years. We want to give you lots and lots of information you really need to get this issue straight in your own heart and your own mind. And again, people ask us all the time, how old do you think the earth is? Well, we say roughly 6,000 years. You know, so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. If you really study the biblical genealogies and chronologies, it's a good way to come up with a reasonably accurate biblical chronology. My favorite work on the subject is called, amazingly enough, The Chronology of the Old Testament by Dr. Floyd Nolan Jones. This is just an amazing book. I tell people it's sort of part history book and part detective story. There are no gaps in the genealogies. There are no errors in the biblical chronology. This is a wonderful way to really understand biblical chronology and get a much deeper understanding, particularly of the Old Testament. My wife and daughters and I have gone through this book cover to cover twice as a family Bible study. I could not recommend it more highly. You don't want to mention Answers Magazine's our flagship publication. It is not just a magazine about creation and evolution. It's a magazine about biblical worldview how to better understand what we as Christians believe, how to better defend our faith in an ever-skeptical, ever-hostile world. It comes out quarterly. It's a wonderful resource. Each issue has a pull-out children's section in it designed to help us equip the youngest among us to defend their faith in the very earliest days. And here at the conference, for every year you subscribe, we'll give you a free DVD. You subscribe for one year, we'll give you one free DVD. You subscribe for three years, we'll give you three free DVDs. Folks, it is not often people will openly bribe you to subscribe to their magazine. That's exactly what we're going to do. I promise you'll find it a blessing. The Answers Book Series answers books 1, 2, 3, and 4. And these four volumes, over 120 of the most asked questions about creation and evolution with sound biblical scientific answers. As regards to the age of the earth, uh, Answers Book 1 has chapters on carbon-14 dating and the so-called long age method. Answers Book for Teens, these are collections of questions we've actually gotten from teenagers in our youth conferences over the years. Again, with sound biblical answers. And these are questions a lot of times we as adults don't have to deal with. And what about the Bible and sexuality? What about homosexual activity? You ever uh, notice how in our culture today, if you take a biblical stand on something, you're called a hater or such and such a phobe? 
Well, our young people see that and they go, well, I don't want to be considered a hater. They need to understand that taking a biblical stance on issues in our culture and our society does not make them a hater. We need to take a stand on what God's Word tells us is right and avoid what God's Word tells us is wrong. And the most important chapter in these two books is simply this. How could God love somebody as messed up as me? And it's sad to say I get that question a lot from teenagers. Answers book set for kids, answer, uh, volumes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. These are questions that we get from ages 4 to 10. Again, sometimes the little kids ask the toughest theologic questions. Lots of other resources, particularly involving dinosaurs, dinosaurs for kids, A is for Adam, DVDs on lots of different subjects and topics. And here at the conference, we have what we call our You Choose special. Uh, the more items you get, the bigger discount we'll give you. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to build your own creation library at home. The last resource I'll mention is called the Foundations Curriculum Kit. It's a six-DVD set by Ken Ham. It's broken into 12 lectures. has a student guide and a teacher's guide. It's a great way to have an entire creation seminar in your own home. This can be used for individual study, for discipleship classes, for doing member classes, for homeschool group study. It's been used in any number of different circumstances and situations, and we've gotten rave reviews on it. It's a great way to understand creation apologetics. And with that, I'm done. You're going to come up and give them instructions? Okay, here's the boss.